Welcome to Shared Insights, the podcast from BA Insight. My name is Pete Wright, and I am joined today by Sid Probstein. Sid is currently the chief product officer at eShare, but his experience as a technologist and entrepreneur across our sector is, in a word, vast. Along with his day-to-day, Sid is an author, a speaker, and a futurist. And today, we're going to be taking on one of the peskiest questions in technology. Where is my flying car? Sid, welcome to Shared Insights. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. You know, I, I joke, but not really about the flying car thing. I think it's a provocative question for me because we have so many wonderful things out of my science fiction childhood. Uh, these things that are now real, right? These tangible artifacts and tools of the present that are ripped off the pages of my favorite books as a kid. So, you know, to you, as a guy who spent so many years in technology bringing companies to life, I suppose it should come as no surprise that you would bring this topic to us today. Everything that was science fiction when I was a kid is now real. So as a grown-up kid, Sid, what are you most excited about from your science fiction youth that you can touch and use right now today? Well, you know, I think the best thing is the fact that it, it is all here pretty much, not everything, but almost everything. So we're sort of living in that movie or, uh, you know, the things we used to see in Creature Double Feature, you know, uh, on Sunday afternoons or Saturday afternoons. My personal favorite, of course, I think is everybody's, is what we used to be referred to as a phone, uh, now I ref- or a smartphone. Now I refer to it as an appendage or an organ. Uh, I, I think Brad Feld, uh, the great uh, investor VC, had a, a line about how uh, you know if he got thirty or forty feet away from a room, having left his phone, he would feel physically ill, uh, and of course that reminding him to go pick it up. We, we depend on our phones for so much, and. You know, I think we could easily list a hundred things, a hundred products, if you will, that are that one phone replaces, right? Like it's our alarm clock and it's also tracking our health. So it's kind of doing a bunch of device functions there. It's um, replaced my computer at some level for browsing the web. And of course, it's a phone, it's a compass, it's a flashlight. Certainly, radio and television and movie theater. Right. I mean, you name it, it almost uh, it takes it up. But but fascinatingly, right, we see this now and say, oh, this is so obvious, the app store, the platform. But the truth is, predicting the future is hard. Um, and uh, it's wrong to say anybody ever said that it's particularly hard. Just predictions are hard. Um, Star Trek, for example, one of my favorite shows, one of the most influential science fiction shows out there, uh, had it pretty wrong, if you remember uh, their view on devices, Right was that you had the communicator, the phaser, and the tricorder, and actually there was a separate medical device, and and clearly that's wrong because they are all going to be probably in one device or just about one device. Uh, maybe you could argue that the phaser has special power requirements, but uh, I I think you know that's an example of how how interesting science fiction is when you look at predictions. It's easy to get trapped in what we've always done, and hard to think about how could it really be different. Right? Can we imagine, for example, something more cutting edge than a phone? A folding phone? Not that difficult, right? But let's imagine a phone that we can wrap around our shoulder like it's a bandana or pull it into the length of a, you know, of a belt if we needed it that way or perhaps if we wanted it to be a sensor in that regard or compressing it down so it could fit in our shoe or fly along above us taking photos, right? Uh, one device could do many things. It's a, sort of the ultimate sci-fi concept, so... Super exciting, if you can. Isn't it, it, it even more delightful? You know, one of the things I think Star Trek probably got more right than others is is the idea that we can say, hello, computer, 
and uh, and suddenly the the ship is talking to us. And not only that, we have these uh, this sort of integration with the the now the vocal robot, right? With all that are competing with one another. How many different names can I call to activate all of my various computer agents uh, all at once without even seeing the device that they're connected to? It's one of my favorite parts too, you know, and obviously it inspired, you know, Brendan Page to create Google at some level. The Star Trek computer never mis- uh, misunderstood, never had to ask about the context, never had any questions about the role or it had full command of the ship and all of history, it seemed like. Um, it didn't ask for your PIN number. Uh, on occasion, actually, I think there are one or two episodes where there was forbidden information that uh, a special password required. So in that regard, it's certainly true. But that's still incredibly elusive, you know, it, it, in, with respect to something like having a device that can do many functions or, frankly, just the fact that in a very sci-fi way, my phone, you know, can track my health uh, if I had the Apple Watch or any of those watches, not to pick one. Um, it collects a lot of data on me, that, you know, and that can be used for all kinds of analysis. That seems further along than, say, Siri or Alexa um, you know, Siri, which sometimes has trouble playing a, a, a song I actually have in my library, right? The other day it was bringing up podcasts matching the same, the song I was looking for, uh, not even close, right? And so I think disambiguation and some of the other problems uh, that, that plague, you know, broadly this, the world of search, the world of uh, query understanding, those still haven't been solved. So we're, we're ways from sci-fi there. Well, we should talk then about some of the trends that are uh, sort of influencing the investments in uh, in these new technologies, right? Uh, you know, some of the trends around, you know, how we're handling disambiguation, how we're handling, you know, AI machine learning and how that's influencing the, the future's sort of invisible computing for us, for us end users. That's totally right. And of course, that's solving that problem that's so so front and center. Um, and the good news is people have been trying to understand what people mean when they type a word or two or three uh, and for the purpose of showing them ads. And so a lot of work's been done there in terms of you know random approaches saying, let's show a bunch of random ads and see how different audiences react and then try to predict what audience a, a new uh, user is and then show them the stuff that was most produced the most response so-called quant thinking, right, to now um, a lot of big data approaches looking at query logs and getting users to rank or evaluate results and then trying to you know, crunch that to find the patterns. Um, there's certainly a lot of progress. The trick, though, is you really need a pretty complete solution. You need something that's capturing, for starters, all of that activity so that you can even begin to analyze it. You need to be able to classify a bunch of things, and classification, much like prediction, is very hard. You, you want to know, are they looking for a list of things? For example, if they're searching, is this related to something temporal? Like, is it an appointment? Um, or uh, is it a research topic? Or are they looking for a specific answer? Right? Sometimes that notion of, are they trying to solve a mystery? Or are they trying to fit together the pieces of a puzzle? Um, all of those things are, are drawing a lot of ad dollars, particularly when there's, uh, or investment dollars, I should say, particularly when there's money to be made, like advertising, or um, an area where the, the risk and cost is very high. Uh, for example, manual processing of, of mortgage documents. A lot of work's going into uh, being able to use sort of next generation OCR and then automatic resolution of the most common errors uh, so that humans don't have to do that and somebody could get a quote or approval almost immediately for a loan as opposed to potentially waiting for days and feeling anxious. Right on up to you know compliance and knowledge work where 
Do we really have two weeks to pull together the data to get an answer? Uh, when the position, you know, that we would take, if we thought a particular um, prediction was going to go one way or the other, you know, only lasts for an hour or, or, or a day, is it worth investing for two weeks? So sometimes the investment isn't speeding it up. Sometimes it's been getting that insight. But wherever, you know, there's a compliance problem or a, a real revenue opportunity problem, that's where uh, we're spending is, uh, is lining up. How does this line up for you around the cultural sort of costs of these new technologies? I mean, you talked uh, about, um, you know, the investment that comes from opportunity around today, advertising. Um, But we also have a little bit of a backlash going on right now. And I, I say that with, you know, heavy air quotes a little bit. It feels like there is this groundswell of the the human cost becoming more transparent in and putting pressure on big data companies in acting in a more principled manner that that letting advertising drive investment at the cost of human users is a detriment to the pace of just straight up innovation. And and at some level, you need people to feel safe using these technologies so that you can learn how the technologies will interact with humanity. Right. So what is your sense on on where we are in the long arc of history around invention uh, and innovation in this space and the role of just straight up doing good in the world? Well, I, I certainly think the recent events uh, of all the different data breaches and selling of data and leaking of data and the fact that you know leak is a household word, right? Because uh, because of, of politics, um, it's important to remember that na- nature hates a vacuum. And so, as much as a lot of this stuff has happened, look at some of the things that have come out of the positive side of all of this intense connectivity and social. Uh, social media, while there has uh, there's been tremendous communication of you know the, some of the the threats of AI, the the concern about AI, or some specific people who have been misusing it. Now, it's not to say that that's always been heard, right? But with higher awareness of the issues and the possibility, the risk of what can be done with data, what can be done with prediction, the biases that are present in some of these things those messages, discovery of those things can be transmitted faster than ever, right? And we don't have, that's not something we have to imagine or, or it's, it's not a stretch. A company that, you know, is breached or does something wrong, even if it's for one customer sometimes, can be lit up on Twitter, uh, have their reputation immediately questioned, right? And if they really have acted poorly, usually there are significant consequences in share price uh, or, or in just sales. And executive teams, you know, while it's an axiom that uh, management will get away with it, uh, it's not necessarily the case, right? These kinds of things can be uh, spread very quickly. And again, if there's typically some re- reality to uh, to fraud or offense or misuse of data, those things come back to haunt uh, haunt them. It's true. Also, we have to see a little bit, right? There have been some major violations in Europe, and while it seems like GDPR has teeth. Um, we'll see if it's you know pennies on the dollar for someone like Google or Facebook who have vast vast sums of of cash and and continue to earn it, uh, or if it's if it's a more material punishment um, and if they really do make compliance an important piece of the future. So, I personally feel positive. Uh, uh, I think it's important to uh, trust and verify uh, that the progress is being made. And um, you know the the truth is these things are going to happen one way or the other, and people participate when they are uh, publishing their thoughts and, and commentary in public. And perhaps uh, that will be enough to really get, you know, something together that we ultimately see as more AI and more intelligent and more of science fiction 
and more like that, you know, Star Trek computer uh, than the things we, we play with today in a positive way. Yeah, certainly in a way that that, you know, more people feel like they can trust to bring into their homes and bring into their lives, uh, which I think is is one of the most interesting kind of trends that we see when we look at at uh, you know the future. We want to talk about the future of search. What what is the future of search look like in this space, and uh, what are the things that you are uh, looking forward to seeing uh, develop and grow? Well, it's a, a great segue from Google uh, and, and thinking about search and how how things have changed. I was speaking with some friends the other night uh, over dinner, and we were arguing about trivia. And of course, we instantly resolved it. And it, it became so clear that there is no trivia anymore, right? If we're in a bar arguing about trivia, well, we're just sort of ignoring the fact that the phone can answer that question. But there's that's a, certainly an order of concern. Would you call that like a game-changing use case for search? I don't think bar trivia is a game-changing use case for search, but there are. And where once you have the index, the capabilities to do and to answer a question, then the question is, how can you anticipate that question and not make the user ask? That's the real future of search. So partly, it's always important to separate what Google does from you know so-called enterprise search, where you're dealing with behind the firewall inside the company search. Google can't answer the typical questions there, which often are list-oriented or specific to the company and aren't documents that Google can see. So just getting at those things can be hard. Um, search by nature finds documents. And in the corporation, in the world of corporate search, very often, we're trying to find lists of things like, you know, which customers bought particular products with these features, maybe mention something in a discussion with our sales teams or with our service teams. And ferreting those out can be difficult. Getting those lists together can be difficult. But if we think about it, the future of search is paying attention to that and a whole lot more, like my personal context. So if I have a, let's say I use companies as Office 365, right? So my calendar, et cetera, is all online. And so are the calendars and uh, inboxes of my colleagues. Well, if I authorized it, then some agent could sit there looking and see who I'm meeting with, check my correspondence with them, and ultimately start to generate and infer what queries should I be running for that meeting? And when should I run them? And when would I want to look at the results? And how would I want to see those results? That's a lot of what the future looks like, where much like you know, my phone will remind me it's time to leave for an appointment. Actually, I was late today, um, but that was my fault, not uh, not series or <laughs> not Google calendars. But um, that's the beginning. That's the first layer of the onion. A deeper layer is, you know, here's your briefing for your meeting. Um, here's uh, alternate route information. Here's uh, location of uh, a good venue for lunch during a meeting or a debriefing spot. Here's a great um, article that you may want to contribute because it was authored by one of the people you're meeting with or one of their team members, right? Those are some of the interesting connections that search can begin to surface. And whether you're asking for that specific information, which I think is great if you can fulfill it, but even better is to have that brought to you proactively. That's more like the future. One of the things we think talk about on the show all the time is the Google problem when it comes to internal search, right? It's this uh, the idea that um, as consumers at home, we're searching Google and we're searching Amazon, and then we bring our expectation of search performance into 
work and the internal search we expect to live up to our experience at the kitchen table. And I think about that in terms of YouTube's vaunted algorithm, right? That, uh, you know, it recommends videos based on what I've already watched that it thinks I, I may like in the future. And the gap between insight and insanity on YouTube's algorithm is, I think, a great example of the where we are right now snapshot, that I have a fantastic list of recommended videos. And if I look at one puppy video, the whole thing is dogs on motorcycles, right? It's adorable, but it has gone way too far in the wrong direction. And that I'm hearing more and more uh, from folks who are aware that this is happening and have higher and higher expectations that it's going to get better more quickly. And I I think that, uh, you know, as you say, I mean, there is a lot of opportunity yet to be squeezed out of of some of these tools to to make them better and make our expectations align more clearly with our reality. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I was actually reflecting the other day on uh, on this, and I believe it's to call it the Google problem is is one thing to call it the Amazon problems another, um, because. I really find it almost impossible, and I've many people I know in search have said the same thing. It's very hard to shop on Amazon. I can buy, and I do buy. I'm a really repeat serial customer. Um, but at the end of the day, when I am not sure what product to purchase, I don't go to Amazon unless it's something like an electronic cable or something like that. You know, or if it has a title, if I know it, of course, that's a different matter. That's a known item, but. The problem is it's not good. It, it has so many products and it's not really good at helping me understand what are the elements of the thing I'm trying to buy that will help me navigate. So the other day I bought a... I actually, uh, earlier last year, I bought a new ski jacket. And I wanted a warmer ski jacket that was important. And I could not find... Although if all the deals were present on Amazon, I couldn't find the one I wanted. In five minutes, I found a specific website that sold pretty much nothing but ski jackets. They showed me the three categories, one of which was the you know heat rating, and I very quickly found what I wanted. And then I bought it on Amazon from the same firm. I want to say so I didn't um, cut cut the middleman out there. The same firm uh, also sold the product on Amazon, so they ultimately got the deal. So that's one thing: is understanding what's important to someone who's buying a ski jacket versus what's important to someone who's buying products or clothing. That's one one aspect. The other is. Once you're right, once I started searching for ski jackets, now Amazon and, and Google to a, another a lesser extent are going to sit there showing me ski jackets endlessly, even though I've kind of finished that mission. They've lost a little bit the temporal aspect and they understand that I don't want more now. Maybe if you had a real deal, I'd consider it right within 30 days. But all of these engines have lost an important thing, which is serendipity. And that's, of course, why you know the market crash was so years ago was so unpredictable. Models only considered this housing market going up. There was no idea that suddenly randomly it could turn in another direction. Well, it's very much the same with these. How do you? What do you infer from the fact that I purchased a ski jacket? And how could you? What could you show me that's serendipitous and related, but not another ski jacket? Maybe gloves or a hat or something that matches that's on sale from the same brand. But that doesn't seem to happen. So I think those are. Again, using that similarity uh, is something that other engines that are building on top of and learning from Amazon, like Wayfarers, for example, right? They have a whole different approach, but they sell far less. And that is, is the future, is a deeper understanding of how to buy something for a specific use case. And then ultimately, some general AI aggregating those all together. So some of the things I'm most excited about in, in terms of our, our you know, way out there uh, uh, technology from the future, uh, lighting me up as a kid kind of uh, uh, 
uh, tools are, are things like Waze, you know, when, when I can look at my Maps app or I can go to Waze and get insight from the sort of outsourced community, the outsourced transportation brain that feels like I'm living, you know, 50 years in the future right now today, like when I leave my house. I know things that I never would have imagined that I could see in such an easy snapshot right in front of me on my device. What are the things that are, are that excite you to think about in our, you know, uh, 25, 50 year horizon? Well, I do think, you know, the incorporation of people uh, and their perspectives in a seamless way is is very powerful. And, and look, it's pure science fiction. Many movies have been written about it. Um, you know, imagine if we all wore headsets, like the, the classic Google Glass, but they're broadcast too. Um, anytime there's an, a, a moment, an event of any kind, minor or major, dozens, if not hundreds of people can be viewing it. Uh, they can be broadcasting it. Drones can do the same thing too. We can essentially imagine being able to walk a crime back in time, right? And say, oh, you know, this bad thing happened, back up and track all of the people involved because we've been recording everything, tracking everything. Those are scary, right? But there's, there's a great use case too, which is the child who wanders off uh, or the, uh, you know, uh, uh, person who needs assistance because they aren't able to navigate through some, some complex problem uh, in business. Those, an AI can come and help that out too. Here's how you handle this exception, um, stepping in and interceding, maybe connecting in the expert. Uh, there are some great examples out there in healthcare, particularly of you know, using a device in a, at the edge in a situation, some actual live uh, situation where someone may be injured or, or hurt, getting the data and then transmitting it to an expert halfway around the world or two thirds of the way around the world uh, or in the right next door, you know, if they, but they aren't able to actually go to the scene and getting the best possible diagnosis and analysis. Those are all stages of uh, the connections between people that can be positive ones, right? And not, not like social swarming or uh, something, something more negative. One of the things that I we it gets so much sort of criticism is that technology is is uh, you know at the heart of fracturing human attention, right? That there's just too much signal that creates too much noise. I really like what you're saying here because it brings to mind kind of a something I've never really thought about that you know 25 years from now we may just live in a a period where our attention is trafficked, right? It's not fractured. It is guided by technology and and trafficked in a way like a circuit board in a way to to actually make good on the the efficiencies that we've we've been hoping about all along. Uh, I think that's that's a really exciting uh, concept. There's no doubt that, you know, we can imagine it's very easy for us to imagine AI taking over, replacing us, all these negative consequences. But the truth is, they're unlikely. They're much less likely than a great median outcome, which is AI becomes assistant to the human. Today, the best chess player in the world is neither a human or computer. It's the combination. And the 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 idea that you you, you are almost in the matrix, right? And you're Neo, and you need to learn kung fu, and you you download it. Well, maybe it's not quite like that right away, but you need corporate kung fu. You need parenting kung fu, you need shopping kung fu, you need travel kung fu. And the AI is there linking in experts or deriving its own intelligence from their writings and photojournalism and all of that. And they help you and you have a great outcome. If that could be something that's you know sustained for a long period, at some point, perhaps we will lose interest in some of those functions, right? And then be happier um, about, about yielding those things to an AI that's learned from 
working with us as opposed to, you know, being scary and against us. Also, I want to learn real kung fu and how to fly a helicopter. Especially if I could just download it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the stuff. Sid, thank you so much for your time today. Any uh, Anything that I have not asked you that you're excited to, to make sure to get out there to uh, wrap us up here? Uh, well, I'm very excited about uh, some of the changes that uh, folks uh, are talking about on Twitter. And, uh, you know, there's been a lively debate about that and all the other things uh, that we talked about, please you know, feel free to visit me on Twitter at, at Sid Probstein. And link in the show notes. Sid, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. I hope this isn't the last time our paths cross. Same here. Thank you. On behalf of Sid Probstein, I'm Pete Wright. Thank you, everybody, for downloading the show this week. We'll catch you next time right here on Shared Insights, the podcast from BA Insight. <laughs>